This week's TripCast is sponsored by QCare. Providing quality injury benefits coverage for your employees is the right thing to do. Get your current Texas Injury Benefit Program designated as a QCare program and protect the 5% of Texas employees who have no injury benefits coverage. QCare provides simple injury outcomes for Texans. And Austin Community Foundation. The Women's Fund at Austin Community Foundation invests in women and children to build a stronger, more equitable Central Texas. Get involved at austincf.org slash women's fund. This is Alexa Uda here on Wednesday, January 22nd with your Texas Tribune Tripcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by managing editor and Astros fan in morning, Matthew Watkins. <laughs> and I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> politics reporter, Cassie Pollock. Hello. And politics reporter, Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. We'll also be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so <clears throat> send them our way using the hashtag Tribcast. All right, so we got some campaign finance numbers last week that in some ways sort of illuminated what the next few months are going to look like. Uh, Patrick, what were some of your biggest takeaways? Yeah, so these were state-level campaign finance reports. We don't get the federal ones until later this month. Uh, So I think the big uh, focus in this latest round of campaign finance reports is what they told us about the fight for the state house, where Democrats are currently effectively nine seats away from the majority. Um, and that is an increase, you know, an increasing subject of attention by uh, statewide Democrats, national Democratic groups. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to look at and judge kind of the overall fight for the House based on these reports. One of the ways that we focused on in a story that we wrote, and one of the easiest ways to think about it, is just are incumbents raising what they need what they need to raise? And the answer is is basically yes on both sides of the aisle. You have um, 12 Democratic freshmen that are being targeted by Republicans, and then you have um, as many as, you know, two dozen Democratic or Republican-held seats that are being targeted by Democrats trying to flip those. Um, and in all these seats where there are incumbents, again, in both parties, for the most part, the incumbents are staying ahead of their their challengers. Um, you know, in some cases, they don't have a single challenger. There are, there are primaries going on in the opposite party to figure out who's going to be their challenger. Uh, but for the most part, they're, they're showing that they're ready um, for the battle financially. Uh, there were a couple exceptions. Two of the Democratic freshmen, two out of those 12 Democratic freshmen, um, were outraised by their challengers. But those two freshmen um, are sitting in districts that are probably going to be just structurally and environmentally seats that are going to be harder for Republicans to flip. And so, you know, at this point, I don't know how much stock you put in that, but it's something to, you know, something for them to obviously be cognizant of and be aware of going forward. Um, you know, we also learned about, for example, um, kind of the constellation of Democratic and Republican groups that are going to be involved in funding the fight for the state house. And we can get into that more if you want, but I think there's especially been uh, some fascination on how that's going to play out on the Republican side with the, you know, effectively with the the Republican speaker, Dennis Bonin, sidelined after this uh, scandal last fall, who's going to fill the void and kind of be um, either the chief group or the chief kind of uh, political figure in defending the Republican majority in the House. Yeah, I do want to. I do want to get to that, but I I want to back up though to the twelve seats that the Democrats have to hold on to. Um, you know, you mentioned those two incumbents, Ana Maria Ramos and Retta Andrew Andrews Bowers, uh, who were basically outraged by their Republican challengers. I mean, I think the DFW area is going to be obviously sort of ground zero for a lot of this. But is I mean, does is it significantly problematic even if? 
the sort of political landscape does benefit them in November, that they are outraised at this point, it feels like there's still a long way to go till the general yeah, election. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like I said, I mean, they are sitting in two districts uh, in Dallas County, as you pointed out, um, that are have been moving very quickly away from Republicans. If you look at the margins there, the incumbent margins and the, the statewide official margins. And so it's not a huge red flag. Um, but you know, on one hand, they're incumbents and, you know, they're expected to be, uh, politically aware of their competition and, and stay ahead of them. And in fact, there was a, a reporter briefing with Chris Turner, the chairman of the house democratic caucus and Sally Israel, the chairwoman of the, um, house democratic campaign committee last week, right before these reports came out. And one of the things that Sally Israel did say is that they do have among those 12 democratic freshmen. They do have some strong fundraisers, people like Julie Johnson and John Turner. But she said she, she is more concerned with those who are not crossing the six-figure mark. Um, and there were several among those 12, not just Ramos and Bowers, um, who did not cross 100,000 raise. So even by you know the standards of, of one of their party leaders, they're probably coming in a little lower than they, they should be. Um, but big picture speaking, still months and months until that election yeah. and still districts that you know I would say are you know lean to likely uh, Democrat at this point. It's amazing just how we we go to the takeaways of this most recent fundraising report period, and we immediately look at the general election as opposed to the primaries. It just really tells it's gonna you. It's going to be your thing. I know. I, I, I'm just going to be beating this drum <laughs> until March 3rd is over and we can start. Well, then we all have the runoffs, but then, you know, um, I just, you know, the the amount of just action, particularly in the House, in the primaries, is just so small. There's a few races, you know, on both sides that we're kind of watching, but nothing that, you know, heats up. You know, you talk about the outside groups, just the fact that Charlie Guerin is is running a, you know, uh, is running, helping push for this pack that's looking toward the general election. You know, the past, what, two, three cycles, he was in the midst of a brutal kind of primary fight at this right. time around. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's fascinating and, you know, slightly boring this time around that, that we're not even really thinking about that right now. Well, I am, Cassie, I'm interested in the fact, you know, we talked about this about about this a few weeks ago, but like Bonin has all this money that he's been holding on to. And I guess I wonder if at this point, you know, he was so adamant about protecting incumbents and going after people who got in the way of incumbents and whatnot. And obviously that sort of blew up with the mm -hmm. secret recording. Um, but I, should he be spending money on any of these incumbents that do have primary challengers at this point? Is it surprising that he's not? I don't know if like surprising is the right word. I think there's just maybe the the broader question or the more pressing question of like, is he actually going to end up spending any of it on any of these House members at any point of this election cycle? And to my knowledge, and maybe to a lot of other people's knowledge, like there's not really a clear cut answer on that yet. There's tons of rumors floating out around out there in terms of, you know, is he going to help Republicans who are in primaries or who look like they're going to be in tough general election fights? You know, Republicans who stood by him uh, as the political fallout uh, was happening, or is he just going to stay out of it entirely and, uh, you know, do something else with that money? So uh, definitely uh, don't know yet what he ends up doing. There are a couple of interesting primary challenges, but they are the exceptions, not the norm. I mean, you have J.D. Sheffield, who's perennially been a, a target in primary challenges. He's a Republican House member. Uh, he faces two primary challengers. One of them, Cody Johnson, is a guy who's already 
self-funded to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars is, is clearly a, a uniquely strong primary challenger as a result of that that capacity. Uh, on the Democratic side, Harold De Harold Dutton, a Democrat from Houston, he's facing a council member, a former council, city council member from Houston, uh, who was able to kind of kickstart his campaign with, I think, 140-some thousand dollars from his transferred over from his city council campaign. And so those are two that we shout out in the story and we're keeping an eye on. But again, to get to Watkins' broader point in terms of the landscape for primary challenges, um, you know, it, it is it is pretty quiet. Yeah. Was anyone else surprised by the money game in the race to replace Jonathan Stickland? I mean, I think the the periphery districts to me are almost the more interesting ones. I mean, you've got sort of this long list that Democrats are targeting and a, a few that are sort of within that, like, what is it, the five-point margin where Bethel won or lost by five points. But the periphery ones, I, I think, are sort of a little bit more interesting just because it's so it's I think pretty unclear where it's going to go and the money in that Stickland race is pretty interesting on the Democratic side as well. Yeah and you have an interesting dynamic there because you have two candidates on Democratic side one of them Steve I may be mispronouncing his last name Riddell uh, or Riddle who ran against Stickland last time came pretty close and then you have a newcomer Jeff Whitfield I believe who ended up being the top fundraiser across both Democrats and Republican candidates in that open seat um you know, and we've seen this in the congressional races too, a number of races that were close last time. The Democratic nominee is running again, but they have company now in the primary. People who are now attracted to this, you know, newly competitive seat. Um, and in Tarrant County. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that so seat's particularly interesting too, because in a lot of these competitive seats, you know, you look at like Angie Chin Button's seat or Morgan Meyer or, you know, uh, Sarah Davis or something like that, where it's, um, you know, Beto or the top of the party, the Democrats really did well, but, you know, the incumbent Republican kind of held their own or maybe kind of bucked the trend at the top of the ballot. In that seat, Stickland didn't really do that. You know, he, yeah. uh, obviously, a character in the legislature uh, rubbed some people the wrong way, and, you know, that might have been reflected a little bit more. So I think in that particular case, who the Republicans elect will likely have a pretty big influence on how competitive that seat is. Yeah. Uh, what what's the deal with empower Texans low profile Texans empower Texans I don't know what the possessive <laughs> you may have heard of them yeah, <laughs> yeah for, for now the the uh, campaign finance entities that they've typically uh, raised big uh, amounts of money into and spent big amounts of money out of um, are not reporting a lot of financial activity. And even the kind of donors that have long been affiliated with that part of the party in Texas, um, you know, are not making huge individual contributions in races either. And so um, right now that the that environment that has typically supported these intra-party battles or these primary challenges is not particularly fertile financially. Um, that could change, of course. I mean, you know, some of these, you know, primary challenges we've seen the last cycle, you know, don't get significant investment until the last minute. And sometimes that's obviously part of the strategy. You don't want, you know, the, the best primary challenge is one where you can sneak up on the incumbent, um, you know, versus, you know, this slow building <laughs> campaign over months and months in advance. Um, and so that's not to say that those, those entities or those figures are not going to come back to the table before March. But for now, um, we're just not seeing them be a, a huge factor. But there is still Republican money coming through the, what is it, the caucus, and you've got this Karl Rove, Charlie Garen, for price. I don't even know whose right. group it is at this point. But there is a, a steady amount of money coming through that. For sure, yeah. You have hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars even flowing through those entities. Um, most of that, I think, is, is, you know, informally being kind of earmarked for the general election versus, you know, 
being saved up for these primary challenges. Um, you know, one example, I guess, to the contrary of that is uh, the PAC that was formed by former House Speaker Joe Strauss, the candidate contributions that it made on this latest report, I think it gave $5,000 each to eight House Republicans who do have primary challenges. So there's a little interest there in, in cutting, you know, in, in diverting some of that money to people with primary challenges. And maybe if Cassie wants to weigh in more, but for now, it seems like most of the money there is, is you know, basically being set aside for the general election. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and just to the to the point about the caucus pack and then the the Rove Garin pack, I guess we can call that informally, describe it like that. Um, you know, it, I think we've kind of talked about this a couple different times, but there's not really a HDCC House Democratic Campaign Committee equivalent on the Republican side in the House, and you're you know you're trying to seeing somewhat of an attempt to try to fill that gap that obviously the speaker's leaving behind. You know, I was actually kind of surprised. I don't know if you were surprised by this, but were you shocked that the uh, Garen pack outraised the caucus pact in, in, in a shorter amount of time? Was that something that... <laughs> a, a little bit, yeah. They were clearly, it was their, you know, an, an initial fund, debut fundraising yeah. run, and so maybe there was a little more urgency and momentum behind it. Yeah, and um, um, just like in conversations with House members, you know, this isn't to say this is the only reason for that being the case, but I think, uh, you know, the, the GOP caucus pack not bringing in maybe as much as it wanted or maybe not seeing some of the names uh, as contributors is just, again... From some of the remaining fallout from the Bonin, mm -hmm. Dustin Burroughs thing, there's some unhappiness there as to uh, how things ended up, and you know they're not maybe being enough done for certain elements of that entire scandal. And so again, just Republicans, I think a lot of them are feeling uh, you know unsure of how to proceed forward, just given everything that's happened over the past few months in their caucus. And overlaying. Uh, this entire financial battle on both the Democratic side and the Republican side is the looming speaker's race. Right. Um, you know, obviously, uh, people who may be interested in running for speaker are doing what they can during this election cycle to help out candidates and incumbents uh, so that they have those, you know, chits down the line mm -hmm. to cash in. Yeah. Well, let's move on to an election that Matthew is actually interested in, <laughs> unlike the primary one. Uh, voting is underway uh, in what feels like a very special election runoff for House District 28 out in Fort Bend. Uh, catch us up on this election that every Democrat and their mother seems to be in on. A very special election, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I demanded that Alexa put this on the uh, list of topics because I'm so interested in it. I'm going to call it. this chitin later, yeah. just so you know. <laughs> but um, I should also, I think, you know, acknowledge as I continue to try to remind myself that, like, we're all going to want to take all these lessons from it and, you know, what it will all mean kind of remains to be seen. But like to kind of set the stage here, this is the special election in House District 28 um, where uh, State Rep John Zerwas, the former chair of the House Appropriations Committee, has re resigned to go work for UT. There's a special election to replace him. Uh, Zerwas won the seat by, what, 10%? Uh, seven or eight points. Seven or eight points in, uh, in 2018. It's kind of a uh, reach swing seat for Democrats, um, kind of on the far end of the list of seats that they'd, they'd like to target. But because the election is on January 28th, um, everyone and the primaries, frankly, aren't that interesting this time around. Everyone has kind of turned their focus to it. To it. Um, it's an interesting race because of kind of what's happening in the actual campaigning, I think. Uh, so you've got Liz Markowitz on the Democratic side, an educator. She's run for the State Board of Education in the past. And on the other side, Gary Gates, 
kind of a per, perennial candidate. He's, he's run for a lot of seats um, in the past, and uh, they've kind of really gone at it lately. Um, the Democrats have brought up um, some uh, allegations of um, uh, uh, kind of family allegations. Child, yeah, has child abuse allegations from 2000 that yeah. you know, have really been a part of all of Gates's recent campaigns. Yeah, so that, that back and forth has been really interesting to watch. And then on the other side, just how many resources both sides are putting into this. I mean, particularly on the Democratic side, you'll see, you know, Joe Biden, uh, Michael Bloomberg, Elizabeth Warren, Beto O'Rourke, Julian Castro, um, to some extent either campaigning with or at the very least endorsing uh, Markowitz in the race. Um, on the Republican side, uh, Greg Abbott has, has endorsed Gates. Um, you know, there's been some reporting, I believe, about like lending some resources to this race and things like that. And so the question is, you know, is this race going to be competitive? How's this going to turn out? And if so, what lessons can we glean from them, if if anything at all? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> one of the more. All right, next topic. We talk about this. You and I talk about this race every day. So yeah, yeah. I don't know what, what more I can say. Um, one of the things I think is interesting here is the expectations versus the actual structural reality of this district. Uh, given all the national Democratic attention that's got on it, you know, that's that's centered on it increasingly. Expectations are, I think, are you know just naturally through the roof. I mean. When you have three presidential candidates endorsing at least three, you have Beto O'Rourke spending every week. He's basically moved to Fort Bend County. Um, <laughs> Which, you know. I mean, I hear it's a great county to be <laughs> yeah, in. Yeah, great no, 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 very diverse. Um, you know, expectations are naturally just creeping upward and upward for Democrats. Um, but it, it's interesting in that this really isn't a district that if, if you look at the, you know, uh, you know, if you look at the average state house district that Democrats need to flip in November to take the house. This isn't it. This is as Watkins pointed out, this is a high, this is a bigger reach for them. If you compiled, you know, the top 20 seats that Democrats, you know, want to, or think they can flip in November to take the entire house, this would definitely be in the latter 10, if that makes sense. Uh, as like you said, Zerwas won it by eight points. Uh, Beto O'Rourke didn't even win this district. He lost it by, I think, two or three points. There are nine Republican-held seats currently that Beto O'Rourke won. So just to give you a, a, like a feel for how many kind of offensive targets for Democrats could come before this one. Um, and then you have a unique factor in Gates, quite frankly, unique in that he is able to self-fund tremendously. He has, I think, loaned himself as of the latest campaign finance report over a million and a half dollars and also unique. And then he has this unique vulnerability with this, uh, these child abuse allegations from 2000, um, that have been, you know, litigated in previous races, but are now being broadcast to kind of a new audience in some ways in this district. Um, and so there are just some unique factors there. In addition to the fact that, um, structurally it's a district, uh, that is still, you know, kind of a, a battleground reach as, as Watkins said. I think the natural inclination, because it's the only, you know, everyone's looking towards November and is the house flippable? Um, you know, all these questions that we're going to spend the next, you know, 10 months talking about, arguing about, thinking about, and here's this race and the, the like natural inclination is to look at it and be like, what, is this going to be a sign? Is this going to be a test for how possible that is? You know, obviously there are a lot of things that are going to be different about this race. You know, not only like in November, individual house races are not going to be getting this much attention from, you know, candidates who are going to have their own 
other things to worry about. But then in addition, there's, you know, this is the only race on the ballot. You know, uh, there are a lot of questions about, you know, what impact will Trump have on the election? Uh, what impact will the uh, elimination of straight ticket voting have on these House races? Do, does anyone even, do most people going to the polls in November even know who they're representatives are in the Texas House. None of those factors matter in this one, you know. I think one interesting thing that I think this could be a good test of is it's like a practice run for the get out the vote effort, you mm -hmm. know. In, in order for Democrats to win this race, they're going to need to get people who might generally be apathetic about the Texas House to get to the polls and vote. And uh, that's obviously going to be a big goal in November in the presidential race, in the state house race, in congressional races and things like that. So, you know, Turnout, I think, will be an interesting thing to watch Watch next week. Yeah, I have one more question on this, but before, let's go, let's, we've got two more TripCast sponsors we've got to go to. Texas Farm Bureau is committed to the development of youth. That's why we invest in the future. Students are encouraged to apply for TFB scholarships by March 2nd at texasfarmbureau.org. And Methodist Healthcare Ministries is dedicated to creating access to healthcare for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. Learn more at mhm.org. Yeah, I am curious. I mean, we we this isn't the first time this has happened, right? Like I feel like in post-2016 era, we saw these sort of one-off elections that kind of just like swallowed the national attention and sort of like where people were able to sort of focus maybe their electoral anxieties on these specific one-off races and you had all this attention and money going into it. I do think like Aside from the momentum building that I think Democrats are hoping for in a win out of this sort of, you know, reach of a district, I do wonder how much this can actually be replicated in November. I mean, it's a different atmosphere altogether, right? You've got a huge top of the ticket, very, very different electorate and turnout across the state. But can you actually replicate this focus of efforts on this district. I mean, like, you've got Michael Bloomberg, not that anybody probably recognized him when he was knocking on doors, but, like, this is the most block-walked district in the country right now. There's no way you you see that again in November across the state, even in these battleground districts. There's just no way, right? And, and that's when one of the, in November, one of the, I guess it's, like, a good problem to have, but one of the problems that I'd say Democrats have is that the battlefield, the potential pickup opportunities that they've at least identified it's is enormous. so wide yeah. and broad that you're not going to be able to funnel this amount of energy and attention in, you know, it's going to, it's going to have to be much more diffuse, right? You know, Beto Rourke, uh, you know, can't, you know, is not going to be able to hang this, out at every polling across, station, you know, do this across <laughs> 20 districts, you know, be in Harris County in the morning, Dallas County, you mm -hmm. know, like, you know, you're not going to have presidential candidates, um, you know, as focused on it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you're, you're totally right in that right now it's benefiting from being really the only thing that, you know, people can focus on. Um, but the battle for the house in November is obviously going to be much more diffuse and, uh, you know, resources can be spread much thinner. Yeah. And weird things happen in special elections. I mean, we saw that with the Pete Flores seat in the Texas Senate, uh, in 20, 18? 2018. 18? Yeah. yeah, it was 2018. <laughs> 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 Seems like a lifetime yeah. ago. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I, you know, I think we'd, we'd all be well served to just write down. Maybe I should just write down on my calendar on the night of 28th, just calm down. Because <laughs> <laughs> just a reminder for yourself. <laughs> yeah, because, you know. You should the, do that for more than yeah, just the 28th. Actually, I'm just going to start writing that on every day. But but I think it's especially true this time around. It's just, it's so different than what how November is going to play out. 
Yeah. That being said, I can't wait to see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, speaking of the sort of ridiculous amount of endorsements that we've seen, not just in this race, um, there have been so many in the last couple of weeks, particularly among Democratic state lawmakers. Um, you know, at this point, there are some House Democrats who are on their like third presidential candidate <laughs> endorsement. Uh, do these actually move anything? I mean, do they move the needle in any way? I get why a Trump endorsement no. of a Congress person <laughs> makes hey. sense, but all right. <laughs> who wants to go first? Patrick seems to think differently. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, they matter in that, you know, there's... They matter to Patrick. And <laughs> that we write about them. Of course, that's why they matter. Um, look, I think you've seen this, this you know, pretty intense competition for support play out between Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren in Texas. And I think that, um, you know, these endorsements are, are, are fueling a narrative that they're the ones that are building the, the biggest kind of institutional support in Texas among lawmakers. Um, and, you know, obviously endorsements don't matter in a vacuum, um, you know, the thing that I think is separates Biden and Warren in Texas is that Warren has actually, her campaign has been on the ground in Texas organizing since late summer, early fall. Um, whereas Biden's campaign, uh, has not been as nearly formally organized in Texas. And so it's a matter of, you know, what do you, what do you do with these endorsements? I mean, are these people going to be surrogates for you? Are they going to help you fundraise? Are they going to actually help you get out the vote? Are they going to appear at your events in Texas? The Warren campaign has, has utilized its endorsers, um, pretty kind of quickly um, in that, you know, uh, you know, Aaron, Aaron Zwiener, for example, who, you know, was the first elected official in Texas that I know of to endorse Warren, you know, attended at least one office opening for her in Austin and, and helped kind of rally the troops there. Um, and so, yeah, these, you know, these endorsements in a vacuum don't always matter. Um, but in terms of how you use them in the context of what you're infrastructure is in the state and what you're doing to organize in the state, I, I think is helpful because the candidate obviously can't be everywhere. I'd really like to see a poll of Texas. You know, it's, it feels like it's been a while. And But, I mean, one of the interesting things that feels like going on is that the candidates, Bloomberg, Warren, that are really investing in the state are not necessarily the ones that were leading the last round of polls. And, you know, I'm very curious to see what impact all this does end up having and whether things are moving here. We just haven't really seen it yet. Yeah. Yeah, On a just to defend endorsements more. Um, <laughs> you know, Just so on, you can keep writing about On a practical that. level, Texas is a huge state. There's a very short run-up after Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina uh, to the Texas primary. So if you can have someone on the ground here in Texas, a state lawmaker, a congressperson who has a political network who can put on a fundraiser for you, who can, you know, in the course of an afternoon, call eight rich people and say, we need to put together an event for Joe um, or, or, or Liz. I didn't <laughs> realize you were on a first term basis. <laughs> you know, that matters on, on a practical level. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at, you know, for example, uh, Philemon Vela, the congressman in the in the Valley, and, you know, the, the um, support that he's organized, at least among, you know, financially uh, for Biden down there. Um, you know, hosting Jill, Jill Biden for a surrogate trip. I mean, this stuff, you know, matters practically. Um, so that's my, that's my passion. All right, all right. Well, <laughs> this might be a bit of a reach, but the, the one thing I've been thinking about is we hear so much about the, like, different wings of the Democratic Party and this sort of, like, national fight for the life of the Democratic Party and where it's going to land. I do wonder if there's anything to take away from these endorsements? Because it seems like most of them have been split between Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren, who are obviously sort of very different figures in terms of what they represent in, in the factions of the Democratic Party. 
Is there anything to take away from that? I, you know, I do wonder in the like, in the hypothetical that the Democrats win back the House, do you then start seeing those sort of progressive wing splits and more, you know, center, if you can call Joe Biden that, splits in the House based on these endorsements? In the Texas House? In the Texas House, yeah. I don't know. Is that too much of a reach to think about it that way? It's interesting so far, if you look at the state lawmaker endorsements of presidential candidates in Texas, it's not necessarily, I wouldn't say it's necessarily splitting along ideological lines. It's, It's splitting along, like, relationship lines. Like, you have... The, the, you know, you mentioned people who endorsed Castro and O'Rourke and then and then Warren this week. Um, those are all members of the El Paso delegation. You have a number of members up in North Texas who've decided to, to back Joe Biden. Um, you have, you know, Warren's support so far. Most of her endorsements have come from the Austin area, local elected officials in the Austin area. So to me, it strikes me less that these endorsements are following along ideological lines for now rather than it's just kind of these people, you know, share political professional relationships and they're in the same geographic area. Maybe that's not what you're looking for. But. I'm not looking for anything <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question is what I'm trying to say. I, I think on the surface, the Democrats feel seem pretty, in Texas, seem pretty united right now. I do think that particularly in the congressional races, there's maybe a little bit of a conversation below the surface about what does the Democratic nominee mean for the ability to flip the house or to hold on to or win congressional seats and things like that. Um, you know, you look at a place like Houston, right? Which uh, Harris County is pretty solidly democratic now. Um, but what does a uh, presidential candidate who is advocating for like green new deal, like policies mean in a democratic leaning County that is also the energy capital of the world. Um, I think there's some, uh, concerned from some people about like what an Elizabeth Warren ticket led ticket would mean for the viability of Texas being in play. Um, I, I think there's an interesting debate to be had about whether it means much at all, but um, I think there's a little bit of that kind of bouncing around in people's heads. Yeah. I don't know. The November electorate is just a presidential November electorate. I don't know if they're engaged at that level county by county. Sure. I don't know. Um, Well, that is all the time we have for today. Uh, Thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to QCare, Austin Community Foundation, Texas Farm Bureau, and Methodist Healthcare Ministries, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Matthew, Cassie, Patrick, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Regina, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening.